Thanks for checking out the weekly sermon from Church of the Resurrection. We pray that God will use this message to speak to you and help you grow in your faith journey. We'd like to invite you to join us next week at one of our services, whether in live worship online at court.org live or in person at one of our locations in the Kansas City area. Church of the Resurrection is one church in multiple locations. To learn more about our service times and ministries, please visit core.org. We hope you enjoy this message. As we continue worship, I invite you to hear these words of scripture. Our passage today is Romans chapter eight. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of Scripture. St. Paul is credited with writing 13 letters, the earliest documents of the New Testament. He penned some of the Bible's most powerful words, and also a few of its most confusing. Paul's letters had a profound impact on Christian theology and faith, and they continue to speak to us today. The significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is revealed to us through the gospel according to Paul. I want to ask you a question. When you pray to Jesus, if you do, how do you picture him? When you think about Jesus, how do you imagine him? Not just what he looked like, but what he was like. When you think about his character, his heart, if you were describing Jesus to someone else that didn't know him, how would you describe him? Now, today we continue in our series of sermons in Lent, looking at the gospel according to Paul, and we're going to look today at Paul's image of Jesus. How did he picture Jesus? And in the process of doing that, I'm hoping that we'll ourselves be informed our picture of Jesus might be shaped by Paul's picture of Jesus. Now, you know, from the very beginning, Christians have wondered, what did Jesus look like? How could they portray him to other people? And the earliest images we have of Jesus that still exist go back to around 235 AD. Uh, Dura Europa is a city in Syria. It's, a, it's an ancient city. And there we found uh, the earliest image we think we have of Jesus. Take a look at this image and you'll see that there is Jesus healing a man who was was a paralytic and he's picked up his mat to walk. And if you look at it, Jesus doesn't have a beard and uh, he almost looks like an angel here, but he's a, a man in a, in a Roman toga. Um, and, and so this is the earliest image we have. When we think from here, we go to the 500s. There are other images, a few images between then, but in the early 500s, there's an image that became very famous. It was found in St. Catherine's Monastery in, on Mount Sinai. So some of you have been with me there in, the, in Sinai, in the Egyptian peninsula. And, uh, and 
And there we find this image called Christ the Pentecrator. Take a look. And, uh, and as you look at it, you'll notice it's an icon. And you'll notice he's holding what appears to be a Bible. It's probably the four Gospels. His hand is upraised in a blessing, uh, sort of a posture of blessing or a position of teaching. And as you look at his face, his eyes, they each look a little different. And it's thought that perhaps the expression in each eye was meant to represent the dual nature of Jesus, that he's both divine and human. Pantocrator means ruler of all and, and or all-powerful ruler. And so this was how Jesus was pictured. And he was the all-powerful ruler. He was both human and divine. So the, the image that we have of Jesus, the picture of Jesus, is actually pointing towards deeper truths about Jesus, what people believed about Jesus, what we still believe about Jesus. Uh, the last image I want to show you is, uh, is actually an image in Ravenna in northern Italy. And you'll see here in this image a, uh, a tile mosaic at the front of the church. And this is Christ the emperor. So this is at a time when there were still Roman emperors. And you'll, you'll see he's holding a gospel open. It's the gospel of John. And it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, I want you to notice uh, he doesn't have a beard. He looks a bit different than the last image. But I also want you to notice uh, that he's standing on something. He's standing on a lion and he's standing on a snake. The serpent in the Garden of Eden represented the tempter. The, uh, the devil in 1 Peter chapter 5, is, uh, Peter writes the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And Jesus is stepping or stomping on both of them. He has conquered both of them. It's a very powerful image of who Jesus is. So I ask you again, how do you picture Jesus? Now, I think back uh, how different people picture Jesus in different ways throughout history. And I think back to a TV show that came on when I was a kid, 1974. And this episode is from the first year of the series. The show was called Good Times. And it was a black family living in the projects in Chicago. And uh, in this particular episode, the mother, Florida, had, uh, had been talking about this picture she had of Jesus on the wall. And her son, JJ, uh, which was famously known, he was famously known for shouting dynamite in almost every episode. Uh, he had picked, painted another picture of Jesus. So take a look. It really captures something interesting about how we think of the portrait of Jesus. Take a listen. Mama, couldn't we at least let black Jesus hang alongside? Forget it. The only Jesus I know is him. And the one thing he don't need is a partner. <laughs> Mama, how do we know Jesus wasn't black? He could have been from the lost tribe of Israel. They were supposed to be black. I bet they were. If ever people were lost, we're it. <laughs> now just wash out both of you. This picture has been in my family for as long as I can remember. When I was a baby, I don't know what I saw first. My mama, my papa, or this Jesus. Now he's the one I know and love, so let's close the subject. Jesus was black, the Bible would have said so. But it does say so. What are you talking about? I read about it, um, it's in Revelations chapter 1, verse 14. I read about it in Muhammad Speaks. It says, um, oh, his hair is like wool, and his eyes are like flame of fire. Oh, Lord, have mercy. You sure do say that, don't it? And see, Mama, look at that hair, like wool, ain't it? And look at them eyes, red like fire. Yeah, they, they show is. Jenny, how come you decided to paint this? I don't know. All of a sudden, I just had divine thoughts on my mind. And for JJ, that's a first. What, having divine thoughts? No, having a mind. I guess I ought to be grateful for JJ having Jesus on his mind in any color. <laughs> <laughs> 
Then we can hang it on the wall, Mama? Well, now, I... Please, Mama. All right. But just for Black History Week, after that, he comes down. So what I love about that clip is it points to the fact that we imagine Jesus like us. And I think that's why the Gospels never tell us what Jesus looked like. They easily could have told us the color of his hair, the color of his eyes, what, he, you know, what his appearance was like, but they don't say that. Instead, I think they leave to our imagination, and I think God intended this, to imagine Jesus like us. So Asians might imagine Jesus as an Asian, Asian Jesus, Latinos as a Latino Jesus, uh, Native Americans as a Native American Jesus, Pacific Islanders and, and blacks and whites that we see Jesus like us. I want to ask you again, how do you picture Jesus? All right, so when we think about this, I want us to think together about how the Apostle Paul pictured Jesus. Now, Paul never knew Jesus, not, not in person. So Paul was probably in his early 20s when Jesus walked on the earth, when Jesus was crucified. Paul might have been 23, 24 years old. He was probably living in Tarsus in southeastern Turkey, and came to Jerusalem. He'd studied there, grown up in Jerusalem in many ways, studying under the greatest teachers of the law. He comes back to Jerusalem, perhaps shortly after Jesus dies. There is a fledgling movement of Christians who are preaching the good news that Jesus was the Messiah, but that the religious leadership, the Jewish leadership had put him to death. And as they're teaching that, this is embarrassing for the religious leadership. Paul wants to establish himself as a religious leader. He has a great ambition. And so he volunteers to suppress this fledgling movement of Christians. They were actually called followers of the way at the time. And he begins to persecute them. He begins to arrest them. He even presides over the death of one of those Christians, a man named Stephen. And then one day, as, G, as Paul is on his, is on his journey to, to Damascus, excuse me, from Jerusalem, and he has papers allowing him to arrest Christians in Syrian Damascus, he is blinded by a light, a, a vision that comes to him. Christ speaks to him. He can't see for a couple of days. And Christ speaks in the midst of that vision. Why are you persecuting me, Paul? He called him Saul. That was his Hebrew name. Why are you persecuting me, Saul? And he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And then finally he calls him to, to stop persecuting and to begin preaching Jesus. A couple of days later, his, his eyes are opened and he's baptized and he becomes a follower of Christ. This is his first experience of Jesus. He never saw what Jesus looked like, not in person. He never heard Jesus' voice in person. He never saw any of the things that Jesus had done in person. He's converted to Christ and then he goes off for three years and he tries to make sense of this experience of Jesus. And in the process of doing that, thinks about Jesus in the light of everything he knew about the law. He, he was an expert in the law. And in the process, I, I suspect in prayer and, and, and hearing the Holy Spirit and listening for Jesus' voices, we listen for his voice all the time in our lives. He grows in his understanding of who Jesus is. He eventually goes to Jerusalem. He meets and spends 15 days with Simon Peter. Here's the stories of Jesus that Simon knew from the three years of public ministry Jesus spent with Simon and, and the other disciples. He listens to James, the brother of Jesus, who grew up with Jesus. So he learns a little bit from them. So he, he picks up the story and he picks up the rest of the story. I'm sure over the years with other people who are followers of Christ, he comes back to Jerusalem again 14 years later. So he's getting these stories, but most of what Paul knows, his primary impression of Jesus is isn't from the Gospels. The Gospels weren't even written yet. Get this. Paul is writing the earliest part of our New Testament. The Gospels are written, most scholars believe, after AD 68 and, and three of the four after AD 70, maybe all four. Paul dies in AD 65. He doesn't have access to the Gospels. He's listened to Peter for 15 days. He's had conversations with others. He had a personal encounter with Christ. And so Paul's emphasis in his writings is not on the things that Jesus did. You don't read about the miracles of Jesus in the, in the letters of Paul. You don't read about the, the things that Jesus said. Paul, Paul alludes to what he says, and he quotes him a couple of times, but that's it. 
We don't hear a lot about what happens in the earthly life of Jesus. We hear about Jesus who was crucified, dead and buried, and rose from the grave. The crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ is what matters most to the Apostle Paul. And that shapes his picture of Jesus. So I want us to think together about about what we learn about Paul's portrait of Jesus from Paul's epistles. So I don't want to start with the title that Paul uses of Jesus more than any other title. So this title is Christ. The word Christ means anointed one, someone who had oil poured on their head. And this was a, this was a term that was used to describe uh, people who were uh, set aside or anything, any object in the Hebrew Bible that was set aside for God's purposes, it was anointed with oil. So the objects in the temple, here at Church of the Resurrection, our bishop came when we dedicated this building and anointed the baptismal font that's right below me here. I can still see the oil on it from when he set it apart for God's purposes. The altar table, even the pulpit was anointed. Well, that was true in the Old Testament as well when the temple was built and before that, the tabernacle. But also prophets were sometimes anointed by God, set apart for God's purposes. Priests were sometimes, particularly the high priest, set apart for God's purposes. But most often in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, the person who was set apart and most often referred to as a Messiah, that's the Hebrew word, Mashiach, is the same word as as the Greek word Christos, the person who's most often set apart and anointed with oil was the king. So when Paul uses the word Christ about Jesus, he's not referring to Jesus by his last name. He's not Jesus Christ as though it's his last name. It's a royal title. He is the king. He is the one set apart for God's purposes to rule on God's behalf. Now, in the entire New Testament, aside from Paul's letters, we find the term Christ appearing 85 times in the New Revised Standard Version of the New Testament, 85 times. Now, just so you know, Paul's letters comprise 23% of the New Testament. Everything else, another 76%. So in Paul's letters, so the rest of the New Testament, 76%, 85 times the word Christ is used. In Paul's letters, his 13 letters, 23% of the New Testament, 369 times Paul uses this term to refer to Christ, more than any other term he uses to refer to Jesus. What is that telling us about his portrait of Jesus? His portrait of Jesus is that Jesus is the king. He is the ruler. He is the Christ. He is the one who rules over everything on earth. Now, people can, can rebel against his rule. People can, can choose not to follow his rule. And he rules on behalf of God, who is the ruler of the universe, right? People can turn away from him. They, they may not know that he's the king, but anyone who knows that he's the king and chooses to follow him, they become a Christian, right? They, you hear the word again. They become a follower of the anointed one. So Jesus is the Christ and we are Christians. We are followers of the the anointed one. We're followers of the king. So this is the royal picture that Paul has of Jesus. The portrait he has is Jesus is the crucified and resurrected king. Or you hear that in the ways that he talks about uh, Jesus and, and and the terminology for which he uses about himself. So if you turn to Romans chapter one, as Paul introduces himself to the, the churches in Rome, he says, Paul, a servant, or actually the Greek word is slave, a slave of Jesus Christ. Like Jesus is his master. He is the king. He is the ruler. And he has submitted himself entirely to Jesus. Uh, sometimes, so he uses that term in Romans and also in Philippians, but elsewhere in the rest of his epistles, he usually says, uh, he usually refers to himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ or an apostle of Christ Jesus. So when he talks about Paul himself as an apostle, the Greek word apostolos means one who is sent. Now in the book of Philemon, just in this one letter alone and nowhere else, he refers to himself as Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now at this point, Paul is in prison. So he's literally in prison because he's a follower of Christ, because he's a subject of Christ, but he also sees himself as a prisoner to Christ. He's bound to Christ. He can't help himself. This is who he is. He's bound himself 
to Jesus. He is a captive to Jesus. And so he sought to live his life in obedience to Jesus. I recently saw a clip from the coronation of King Charles from this last May. And in that clip, I had not seen this particular part of the coronation ceremony. I didn't watch it all online when it happened. Uh, But in this particular clip, uh, King Charles is there with his five-pound crown on his head, and he's sitting on the throne, and uh, and Prince Charles, so King Charles, excuse me, Prince William comes. So King Charles has just been coronated. Prince William comes, and he kneels before his father and pledges his allegiance to him. This is a picture, I think, of Paul and his relationship to Jesus, who pledged his allegiance to Jesus. Take a look. I, William, Prince of Wales, pledge my loyalty to you, and the faith and truth I will bear unto you as your liege man of life and limb. So help me God. Many churches have kneelers, uh, particularly Catholic churches, have kneelers where you kneel in the pew. The reason why you kneel before Christ is because he is Christ the King. We have kneelers at the front of our sanctuary here at the Leewood location. And when we have communion, I invite people to come and kneel. Not very many of you do it, but I invite you to come and kneel before Christ as you receive communion as a way of, again, you know, recognizing he is the King he is the Christ. We kneel before him. This is why we bow when we pray and we close our eyes. We bow as a, as a position of submission, really, offering ourselves to Christ. And this is why every morning when I wake up, I get down on my knees. He is my king and I'm offering myself to him. I'm pledging my allegiance to Christ just as William did to his father, actually in a much more intense way. But William was reading from a card. I, from my heart, say, here I am. You're my king and I want to follow you. Now, another line, and by the way, this is why we sing so many hymns about Christ the King. So you're familiar with some of them. There's also many praise choruses that are like this, but I think of Come Thou Almighty King, one of my favorite hymns in the hymnal. Rejoice the Lord is King. Crown him with many crowns, all glory, Lord, and honor, and many others. Now, the second title that Paul uses for Jesus, a distant second, 238 times he uses it, is the Greek word kurios, which means Lord. Now, in Latin, the term was dominos. So dominos is the same thing. It means Lord, master, ruler, sovereign. And, uh, and it could be used of anyone who was in a position of authority in a given realm. And so uh, sometimes if you saw somebody as a higher authority than you, you would call them kurios. It was like addressing someone as sir. In a household, in the patriarchal world, where the husband was the head of the household, the husband was the kurios of his household. The mayor would be the, the kurios of the city. The king would be the kurios of the kingdom. The emperor was the kurios of the empire. And of course, people saw God as the kurios of the cosmos. And so the term could be used in different ways. And Paul uses this term 238 times with reference to Jesus. It becomes so important that, that calling Jesus Lord was actually the first, really the earliest confession of faith or creed of the church. And so Paul says in Romans 10, 9, he writes, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And in your heart, you have faith that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved or delivered. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Again, this was the earliest confession of faith 
And Paul often speaks about Jesus in these terms. He calls him Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he's bringing together, there's Jesus. Who is he? He is the Christ, he is the King, and he is our Lord. If you're a Christian, he is our Lord. He is our sovereign, our ruler, our master. These two terms go hand in hand, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Philippians 2, 10 through 11, Paul describes what he thinks will happen at the end of time, at the climax of history, at the last judgment. And he says this, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth, and even those under the earth in the realm of the dead. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For Jesus to be Christ and Lord means that we have pledged our, lo- our loyalty to him. We pledged our lives to him to seek to follow him. And of course, what Jesus said in his life was those who lose their lives for my sake will find it. We find the only life really worth living. We find joy and peace and all these other things that we've been longing for when we say that Jesus is Lord. Now, there are other things that Jesus, that Paul says about Jesus. Uh, 27 times he refers to Jesus as the Son, the Son of God. Uh, two times he refers to him as the image of God. And so the, the imprint of God in human flesh. And some say that by, by referring to Jesus as Lord so many times, and that word Lord, kurios in Greek, was the way the Hebrew Bible translated or, or talked about uh, Yahweh, God. And when it was translated from Hebrew into Greek, they used the word kurios. And so some think that his use of the word Lord is pointing towards the divinity of Christ. In any case, these are the royal titles that Jesus uses, uh, that Paul uses concerning Jesus. But I want to recognize that you know, in our images of Jesus, we might have this image of Jesus as a as a as a ruler, as an authority figure. I, I want to put back up on the screen Pantocrator, this image of Jesus as the ruler of all the all the world. And you know, he doesn't look harsh there. He doesn't look particularly friendly either, but he looks wise and all knowing. And and so you know, I, I appreciate that image. But some of us in our minds have an image of Jesus that is a judge who is harsh, who is angry who is ready to, you know, ready to strike us down or push us away. I mean, we have this picture of Jesus as a, as a police officer or somebody who's you know, making sure that we follow all the rules all the time. And, and that picture of Jesus might've been contributed to us by our parents. Often the way we look at our dad and how our dad's treated us might leave us with an impression of what Jesus is like. And so some of us have pictures of Jesus that, that don't look compassionate or kind or caring. When we look at rulers, a ruler, a a Christ, a king could be harsh or kind, can be uh, selfless or selfish. And so again, we go a little deeper into Paul and we ask, well, when Paul thought of Jesus as the Christ, as the king, as the Lord, what did he think of him like? What was his character like? So as I think about this, I think about the question that we had here at Church of the Resurrection at the Leewood location when we were constructing the stained glass window. And I remember being in conversation with the artist, uh, Tim Carey and David Judson, who owned the studio. And I said, guys, we have got to get the figure of Jesus in the stained glass window right because people are going to walk in this room and they are going to see Jesus. And, and if we get it wrong, if he looks, you know, he, he can't look, uh, he can't look uh, too carefree. He needs to look serious. And at the same time, he needs to look warm and welcoming. And if we get it wrong, we're just going to, it's just going it, to, it, it's going to ruin the window. And at one point I remember saying, maybe we shouldn't even have the face of Jesus. Maybe we just have a, a cross of light in the window so we don't get it wrong. And, and we went back to, well, let's just keep trying. And, and, uh, and it's interesting when I saw the film about the making of the window called Holy Frit, uh, it shows at, at one point the uh, artist struggling, Narcissus, who is the, uh, one of the artists they brought in and, and a, an expert and probably the best known person in the field of stained glass and uh, Tim Carey and then David Judson kind of watching over them and their struggle with this, 
getting Jesus right in the image they, they created for us here in our Leewood Sanctuary. I thought you might enjoy seeing a clip from the film, Holy Fred. Take a look. Let's face the real issue. It's all about this gentleman. <laughs> if you have the head finished successfully, you've done a third of the project. I just feel squeamish about it. Not in a way that's like, my, I don't have faith, but I still do, but this window could potentially affect tens of thousands of people. So it's a really heavy responsibility. Every degree of a rotation of a piece of glass turns them from serene, peaceful, right. welcoming Jesus into scowling. That's what happens when you do something for the first time. You have to figure it out. But it takes patience. And that's something that our young artist doesn't have very much of. I'm, I'm at a point where I'm, I'm kind of Why don't you use this? And why don't you pile up a fade? Just pile frit. I'm having to listen to somebody else tell me how to do a face, which I've never had to do that before. I was confused based on the fact that I've, I'm seeing stuff here that's not. I know, but that is not finished. OK. You're so nervous. <laughs> what? Relax. I'm, not, I'm just saying. Got me that. Ow! What do you think it's going to be like when we open up the kiln? I have up? no clue. None whatsoever. They actually ended up making two versions of the face of Christ. It's five feet tall, the face of Christ in the window. And they made two versions. The first one they weren't happy with, and then they made one more, and they felt like they got it right. And the first time I saw it, I'm like, eh, I'm not really sure. And then the more I saw it, the more I thought, okay, I think his eyes, they're right. They show a kindness in his eyes. There's just a gentle, almost a smile on his face. He's serious. You know, he's one who's crucified and buried and resurrected, and yet... And yet there's a love there. And you combine that. I love the fact that in his face, there's browns and reds and yellows and all these different colors you know, of humankind. And, and then I love the fact that his arms are outstretched, welcoming everyone. This is what it actually looks like in the room if you've not seen it in the room before. And captures this sense, I think, of the welcome and warmth of Christ. But you know, no image that anybody can create, no artist can create, will perfectly line up with, with either what I have in my mind or with what we find in the scriptures describing what his character was like. In the end, of course, what we're talking about is not what Jesus literally looked like, but what he was like and how we picture him in our minds. So when the apostle Paul thinks about what Jesus is like and he thinks of him as the Christ, the Lord, how does he picture Jesus? What is his character like? So here's what we find in Paul's letters. We find that Jesus is the one who, as king, laid down his life for his subjects. Paul talks about this again and again and again, that Paul died for us. He freely and willingly gave himself for us, that he showed us this kind of depth of love in his sacrifice, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're gonna talk more about the meaning of Jesus' death in a couple of weeks, but I want you to see right now this idea that this is a picture of God's love for us and of Christ's love for us. What king freely lays down his life for his subjects? Most of them are in hiding and they have their, their warriors fighting out front, but not Jesus. He lays down his life for us. Some have suggested that when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, and so he's writing a portrait in, in words of what love looks like, that what he was really doing was putting down on paper what he saw Jesus as like. Listen to these words again. Love is patient. Picture 
in place of the word love, Christ. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This, I think, was Paul's portrait of Jesus. It's how he saw Christ. We read that it was Christ's love that compelled Paul to do what he did. So so we read these words, the love of Christ urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all. Or in Ephesians chapter three, Paul's great prayer, which I mentioned last week, he says, I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This week, I received a call that a young woman that I've known since she was born had died. She was only 36 years old. She had a very sweet spirit and she was a, you know, she was a, a really special young woman. And yet she struggled. And in her struggles, those struggles uh, tied into addictions and just, there was struggle. She'd committed her life to Christ and yet she struggled. She'd come here to church the resurrection sometimes, but she struggled in her life. And uh, this week she had died, uh, probably due to an overdose. And uh, when I was sitting with her father, her father asked me, you know, do you think I'll see her again in heaven? I, I want to believe that. I want to believe that, that Christ was in her heart. And do you think I'll see her again in heaven? And, you know, this really was about what picture of Jesus do you have in your mind, in your heart? I was thinking, and I shared with him, you know, Jesus, the picture of Jesus we find in the gospels, which is also a picture we find in different ways, but, but the same image in Paul's letters. In the gospels, Jesus is, is telling us that God is like a father who has two sons and one of them wanders away and makes a mess of his life. And when the boy comes back before the boy can even say, I'm sorry, the father runs out to greet him and wraps his arms around him, his arms around him and welcomes him, welcomes him home. And I said, that is what Jesus is saying. That is what God is like. Or Jesus says, there's a, a shepherd with a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away. He doesn't wait for the lost sheep to get eaten or, to, or to, you know, to finally make its way back home. He goes out to look for the lost sheep and he brings it back and he rejoices. And that is what God is like. And Christ came to love sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and everybody else. I mean, he's constantly reaching out for the lost people. And I said, that's what God is like. That's what Jesus was like. And that's why I have no doubt that your daughter is with him. I shared with him a, a, a little clip that I had planned on sharing uh, with you today from the television series, The Chosen. So I've not watched very many of the episodes. I've watched several of them, including the first episode. And what struck me in the first episode of the, of the first year of this series was the way they portrayed both Mary Magdalene and Jesus. Now that first episode, you don't find Jesus come on the scene until the very end. It's telling the story of Mary Magdalene primarily and some of the other disciples. But there's Mary Magdalene, and, and she is known as Lily in, in the first part of this clip, because, or actually the, the, really almost through the entire episode. Lily, probably a reference to Lilith, who Jews believed was a woman who ended up kind of possessed and, and doing the wrong things and, and, uh, and representing that sort of spirit. 
And here was Mary Magdalene. It appears that her father had died when she was little, but he would read a scripture verse to her regularly from Psalm 43, or excuse me, Isaiah 43, about how God had chosen her, how God, you know, formed her and that she, you know, that she belonged to God. This is what her father would tell her. And then, then her father must have died and she had a hard childhood. And eventually she ends up in, in this telling of the story as a prostitute selling her body. And, and, and she ends up demon possessed. And when we think demon possessed, uh, Luke tells us that she was possessed by seven demons that Jesus cast out of her. And those demons might have been actual, literal, spiritual entities. They might have been uh, addictions of various kinds. They might have been various forms of mental illness. But this is Mary Magdalene, and referred to again as Lily. And in the scene that I want to show you, when Jesus finally comes in the scene at the last of the episode, Mary Magdalene is in a bar. And she's been hurt and wounded, and she's, she's struggling with these demons, and, and she wants relief. And so she asks for a glass of I don't know, wine, some kind of alcohol. And then Jesus shows up. Take a look. I said, leave me. That's not for you. Don't touch me. Lily. Lily. Lily, are you okay? I... I have to go. Leave me alone. says the Lord who created you and he who formed you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. That's what I, <laughs> that is what I picture Jesus doing for this young woman at her passing. Is finally delivering her of all of her demons and making her whole and reminding her of something that had been true all of her life and that she knew somehow deep down inside 
that God had formed her and Jesus had redeemed her and she was his. Paul writes these words in Romans 8, some of my favorite words he ever wrote. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And I would say, nor any addiction or struggle that you have can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul saw Jesus as the Christ, as his king, and knelt before him as the Lord, as the master, as the ruler, as the one he pledged to follow with his life. He saw him as the divine son of God, he saw him as the image of God. And he saw him as one who represented God's love for us. I want to ask you again, what is your picture of Jesus? Would you pray with me? And I'd like to invite you just to whisper this prayer under your breath, wherever you are. If these words speak for you, speak them after I speak them. Jesus, I join Paul in calling you my Christ. I accept you as my king. I wish to follow you as my Lord. In my heart, I kneel before you. I pledge my allegiance to you. How grateful I am that you are my king. How out of your great love, you gave your life for me. I thank you that when you walked on this earth, you sought out sinners and tax collectors, the addicted and the mentally ill, the demon-possessed. You love lost sheep and bring them back to you. I put my trust in your love, O Christ my King, and I entrust my life to you. In your holy name, amen. Thank you for watching this week's sermon. We'd love for you to join us again for live worship online or in person. To learn more about Church of the Resurrection, please visit core.org. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.